losing again. God damn it, I got a colic. Hair's all over the place. At this point, I'm getting to a situation where I've got this thinning promontory in the front that is separating, like, the berm here from this lake of lava in the back. And I'm basically okay with my hair as it is. Like, this is essentially, like, mid-80s Nicholson, and I like it, you know? I think he looked like a goddamn pimp in fucking Shining and shit like that. Witches of Eastwick, come on! Uh, he was an absolute king. But I'm just worried if it keeps going, the peninsula's, the, the fucking isthmus is going to wear away. It's going to be some fucking global warming-ass uh, sea level rise. And then I'm in the Costanza zone in which I get sides, which I just don't know if I can handle the sides. I mean, I'll have to if I have to, you know? You have to, you, you, you handle whatever happens, you know? But it is uh, not, so not something that I have yet been able to accommodate myself to. Hopefully, if it happens, it will be, give me a, I'll have enough time to say goodbye before I end up with sides. Not shaving it. Can't shave it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't pull the trigger on it. Just, it's a look. It's a general vibe and look that I don't uh, really find convivial. I don't know. I wouldn't feel like it was me. And I do feel like there's something, uh, I think there's, people say like, you know, hey, say fuck it, cut it. But it's like, well, isn't fuck it letting it go? Like, the real fuck it answer is just leaving it there. Because it's more hassle to keep it that close. You gotta cut your hair more often. Why? If you're saying fuck it, then the real fuck it is just letting it go. Which is what I'm going to be doing one way or the other. So if I get the sides, then I got the sides. And then I will be a sides king. Oh, God damn it! the fucking volume again. This is really getting annoying. I, maybe I need a new phone. I do need a new phone, but I haven't uh, gotten one yet. I'm trying to fuck. All right, I'm going to try to see if, because a lot of it is getting this thing to connect. Because if it actually is connected, shut up. Everyone be quiet. Alright, I'm giving up. I guess I gotta use the fucking mic. The reason I don't want to do this is because people who watch on YouTube say that if it's not connected to the computer, it's really soft there, and it sounds better with the microphone, but the microphone isn't... Or, I mean, uh, it sounds better with this than with the microphone, but if I do it with, with this, everyone gives me the business while I'm not doing the stream. And that is, of course, more distracting because it's right there as opposed to some YouTube comments. Oh, God. I really... What is wrong with everyone? Why is everyone... Why can't people have a common experiential, like, framework so that they have... When they say fine, it means the same thing to everybody? Can we get some sort of uh, denote, some sort of connotative Esperanto... Because I don't get how some people can say it's fine and some people are like, it's terrible. It's the same thing. All right. How are we able to have a functioning society with, like, agreed-upon rules that we could all, like, follow some sort of rule of law or uh, scientific pursuit or engineering if, if there's that much difference in people's experience of the same goddamn phenomena. How can things be that much uh, determined by your subjective experience of it? Explain this to me. So, okay, this sounds good, but now the poor schmucks listening on YouTube, they can't hear it so good. So, I don't know what to do. And since you guys are the ones yelling at me now, I guess I will listen to you. And that's just, you know, it's the way, it's the way that young players are always screwed in any... Uh, sports contracts. It's because the people who end up in leadership positions in the union are almost invariably veterans and they don't really have anything in common with younger players. And so they're always happy to, to underpay younger players for them to maintain their privileges as, as uh, big shots. And that kind of thing happened throughout all strata of, of business unionism in the United States. And it's one of the big reasons why when push came to shove, and the crisis of capitalism happened uh, within a democratic framework, we, there was no uh, working class there to 
uh, 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 speak up for its own interests. Because the institutions that it had been using to do that had been totally co-opted. And now we live in the aftermath of that. And I think that's what I've really been trying to get my head around and what I want to express more in a written form hopefully soon is, is the degree to which we really are operating from a, a fundamentally different political reality than the one that governs the way most everyone assumes politics works because of the total uh, removal from bipartisan political debate all questions of macroeconomics, all questions of distribution of resources within the political framework. With that, with that's gone, that changes the dynamic within politics. And it removes it from the material world over time to the point where when you have something like, say, a 2008 uh, economic crisis, where even like the bubble-fueled rickety machine they put together after the end of industrialization in the United States, even that fell apart. It was restructured with even less allowable uh, argument. Now, the question of, hey, when the economy collapses, uh, should we just give all the money back to the people who did that and kick people out of their homes in the millions? Do we want to do that? Well, both political parties think we have to do that. So it's going to happen no matter what. So there's no political... There's no friction here between the political process and like our general trajectory, the thing that determines our actual fate as opposed to the short-term you know, uh, uh, ebb and flow of the political fortunes of two factions within capitalism that mostly just change a distribution of, uh, of intensity of infliction of pain on one segment of the underclass or another on behalf of the same algorithm-ridden corporate overlords. And I want to talk about the way that this works, the way that this like creates subjects who essentially are incapable of operating out of anything other than a most base narcissistic self-interest that they don't even know that's what they're operating from. Uh, and that that dominates the way we approach politics. We have been declassified. De we, we do not process class through lived experience or express through culture as experience. We live atomized lives as consumers. We are consumers first and foremost. And that is, that, and so if that's the case, and I think it is, because we can no longer hold the fucking machinery of state anymore. Like a, a working class is a class with it, uh, in, in itself that works on its own behalf, a class uh, for itself, what Marx called. That's a transition, that's class consciousness. And we were flickering there for a while in the U.S., but the door slammed shut in the 70s, the fucking box got opened and the Schrodinger's cat died, to use that analogy again, and the fucking, uh, the thing was dead on the table. And what replaced it was this uh, lived experience of consumption. And so that means that we have to look at, if we're going to look at what like, the general trends are of our, of our social organs, of our, of our destiny as a, as a, as a uh, nation... And then, of course, you know, because of our central place in the world, the world around us, uh, the world itself also. So, if that's what we are now, we're consumers, how are we expressing ourselves? Because we can't express ourselves through the language of class, uh, uh, class struggle strikes, uh, you know, Paris, Paris, like countercultural organization against the state along class access, the entirety of what used to compromise working class culture in this country, you know. Uh, 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 Harlan County, USA is a good example. Uh, that still exists, but it is not coordinated. It is not at the level of anything beyond like an individual, uh, you know, industry or uh, specific shop. Everyone is... Everyone is operating on the every man for themselves principle because we are in this sense of constant crisis, because we are so precarious. Everyone is on a tentered hook. That means everyone is forced to choose 
the most, basically the, the, the uh, illusion created by the total precarity of American life post-1980 is that the building is on fire. Because everyone is so fucking precarious, all problems, all political questions specifically, are phrased in the assumption of a burning house with a very narrow time scale for survival because everyone lives that way. When in reality, these questions are, the, the house is fucking fine. The house is fit as a fiddle. The house could provide for everybody. But we don't think that way. And if the house is burning, who do you save? Do you save the neighbor's cat or your cat? Do you save the, the, some you know, stranger who's wandering around in the, in the, in, for some reason in the second floor or your grandmother? Do you save your wife or your, I mean, this is, it's the lifeboat ethics, and that is what, what uh, we live with. That's the politics we live with because of the precarity we all feel. And that means that all politics are, are based on this, this uh, grasping panic and this uh, express, this sadism, as I have said. The, the sense that we're going down, we have to protect for us what we can, which is why Democrats and Republicans align in whatever their narrow... Uh, felt economic interests are, they, uh, they support them. Now, that means that working class people are more likely to adhere, you know, to the job they do there. But everybody, even if they're positioned, you know, in that tenuous zone we all are, where we're both exploiter and exploited, the, the stuff we get, we're going to cleave towards and we're going to want to hold on to. And more importantly now, we're going to want to punish the people who are responsible. Because if the house is burning and we're all going to die, which is the end stage after you realize you can't get anybody more out of the fucking house, who is going to pay for it? Who burned it down? And who, who's going to suffer? And that's what our politics are. Because everyone is operating, at the end of the day, out of a political uh, narcissism, including myself, because we are, are the entirety of our idea of what the political good is is not grounded in any kind of transcendent morality that encompasses anyone outside of ourselves. We think it is, but at the level of emotional uh, truth, at the, at the level where you know, the things you believe go beyond believing them as words and believing them as actions, what we're really driven by is what we think of as our best interests, our best material interests. And because we do not live class and because class is not conscious, that ends up meaning getting mine. And it creates monsters. It's creating monsters every day. It's turning us all into monsters. And that's the idea, to turn us all into just attenuated strings of neurons who are being forced by the algorithm of extractive capitalism to consume and uh, labor at the uh, request of whatever uh, stimulus or stimuli are being uh, uh, offered. You're just there to avoid pain and experience pleasure. Everything that is not forbidden is compulsory. That's the end state of life under capitalism. And we're all headed there slowly. And, within, and, and it happens within our lifetimes. It happens in, in the lifetimes of families. Uh, and it's it, it, it's not like that means people are worse now. It means that the forces pulling us apart are stronger than they've ever been. And it means that our expression, our cultural expression of this, of our, of our attempt to, you know, battle the tide and maintain some dignity is marked with that. It's marked with the trauma of that. And I think a way you can look at that is look at who the last two presidents were. The presidents who came in the wake of the 2008 crisis when there was this massively unpopular bailout that no one wanted, and, both and it happened during a transition of power from one party to the other. This is still amazing to me. Nobody wanted the bailout, politically, like the, the people. No one wanted it. And both parties got together, except for a handful of Republicans who had cover to do it because they knew it was going to pass anyway, uh, voted for it. And both Presidential candidates running supported Bush's plan. And when Biden, Obama won, he continued it. In the aftermath of that, 
we lit, we we fully inhabited a world that we've been transitioning to, you know, or accelerating our transition to towards the seventies, obviously. But really, like this was the moment of like full liquidity of of of, of the, the the liquefaction of the barrier between the spectacle of entertainment and culture as expressed by our uh, purchases of media. Like that's the sum total of what we are, right? Is what we buy to watch, and because that's the residue of all the other transactions that make up life as a commodified atom, but that we can't see except in our like anecdotal daily life. The only expressions that we can access are cultural, which is stuff we pay to observe. Some way or another, an economy, because everything has been commodified. And the way we do that politically, the way we do that politi- the, the political expression of that consumer thing is voting. And so our there was this dynamic where our expression of our lives as, as atomized consumers, composed of buying things and once in a while voting, created this dynamic of a political superstructure and a cultural superstructure. And what we did, where we, who we voted for in, in, the, in, in our acts, our symbolic uh, enactment of our uh, consumer choices within politics, would then like set, create a uh, material condition that culture would respond to. And the degree to which that vote contributed to a change in anything has reduced under t- over time to now where the stick is not connected to anything anymore. Or if it is, it's at almost the quantum level. The machines are growing on, grinding on behind the scenes almost completely. All we really have is the shadow of the shadow. And that is, and that is, and that, and the, that, that has left a gap in our belief of ourselves as political actors. Like, this stuff's not working, and yet we still care. And that means we have, and the degree, and that hole has been filled with our absorption of politics into the overall, of our overall emotional response to media in general. It becomes part of our media diet. And so the expressions on the population level, in the hundreds of millions of people level, the only population level you can get to where like you can really trace trends meaningfully and screen out all of the noise, you have what people watch and buy and listen to and what people elect. And since 2008, we have had our choices. And what we have done is essentially recreate two uh, archetypes of two different um, groups of people divided by geography and and, uh, uh, d- demographics mostly, not class one of them, but not in any way the determining one. Uh, choosing between different modes of value, I guess. Different, like, a, a package of cultural and aesthetic, and lar- boiling down to aesthetic preferences. Because we're talking about is whether you're voting or you're buying something, you're, you're watching a channel and contributing to its ad revenue, you're purchasing a streaming service, you're downloading something. What you're doing is you're wanting to see a certain thing. A certain thing that expresses your overall cultural preferences. And I think that we can see those both in the politics and the political figures that we've exalted, specifically the presidents, because that's the biggest sample size you can find, right? That's where you're really talking big numbers and turning, trying to get something out of you know, the vibrating uh, hornet's nest of American society with its, you know, its total atomization of social interaction. What the fuck? Heard something. And you look at the uh, figures who emerge from our culture, where you also have hundreds of millions of people contributing. And this brings me to a subject that I've been talking about for a long time. I wrote an article for it, embarrassingly enough, now uh, that I look back on it for current affairs a few years ago where I kind of scratched the surface at what I was trying to get at about prestige television. And uh, I think I 
finally getting to kind of get my head around what I've really been getting at this whole time because I think you have because what really made me realize this because I've been trying to articulate this I wrote the article which I think was okay but it really glossed over a lot of important stuff and I've refined it over the years but uh, what really kicked it in for me was the realization and I think I've like known this in the back and other people might have said this but it never it never really hit with me before that Barack Obama is the prestige TV president and that's been sitting in my head for a while and I finally figured out like what I meant by that and now I think I understand or at least I think I'm close to it so I'm going to try to talk this through so we've got our atomized Pringle population okay in the 80s and 90s we're reacting to the 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 end of labor power in America and this new norm this new world of debt financed consumption as the American uh, economic model and all of the cultural implications that that has further just deepening these processes of of alienation while at the political level deregulation accelerates to create all this new explosions of money and everything so the deregulatory framework that came in with Carter and Reagan broke up the old uh, calcified Fordist business model of a bunch of big sectors of the American economy finance real estate and most uh, for our purposes most importantly broadcast media before the before the 70s uh, uh, the media the television media what that meant was three networks that put on shows every night to try to get as many eyeballs as possible to sell soap and beer that's it uh, and what that meant is television was broadcast it was trying to catch a big net and even within that there were all the attempts to uh, like narrowcast for, for uh, you know, like soap operas for women who are home all day, and you know, uh, westerns for dad, and cartoons for the kiddies. Those were all sub demographics within a broader conceived like uh, American suburban family. Right? Fam it was a family thing, and it was the demographic was. I mean, it was the demographic was made by the media itself. You know what I mean? It was it was a uh, totalizing. You know, obviously. It, it, uh, the reflection of it was biased because of, you know, racial prejudice and, and, and all of the uh, attending, you know, distortions that that brings. But the people making it were making it on behalf of what they imagined to be an American audience. And of course, that was a very racist assumption, patriarchal and all that. That was part and parcel of the social order at the time. And, you know, uh, and as a result, but that's not that as bad as it was is not what we're talking about when we're talking about what the business model was getting people to watch the shows as many as possible by making them appealing to as many people as possible what that meant was television was not a challenging artistic medium because you couldn't afford to make something that a lot of people didn't watch it was that simple it brought things towards the middle like there was there were higher brow shows on TV, especially miniseries, and there was low brow stuff like Hee Haw or whatever. But there was still a sort of a a a, a self conscious sort of middle tier thing, a, a idea that this is a general product for a general audience. Meaning, like there's things below it on the entertainment scale that are more tawdry, like you know, uh, uh, B movies uh, and uh, pornos maybe, and like professional wrestling. And then there's things that are more uh, refined, like theater and books and the opera and we're right in the middle and that's where we are like you can stay there you can go out either way but we're here deregulation broke the whole thing up and it brought a new business model in and that was making things for people to pay for a fee-based system now the challenge there is well how do you get people to pay for something that they get for free and they say well if this is what they're looking for, we'll go here and here. Now, the easiest place to go, of course, is below, obviously, because it doesn't require art. You don't have to have the perfect chemistry of people coming together to bring something that has any sort of you know, agreed upon quality. The quality of nudity or a guy's head getting cut off or the word fuck 
is purchasable. It's quantifiable at dollars and cents. And so when HBO, for example, started in the 80s called Home Box Office, the pitch was you can watch theatrical films in your home. And that didn't just mean, because you can see those on TV too, unedited, nudity, violence. And then when they started doing their own shows, like First and Ten and Dream On, which I remember watching as a horny youngster, uh, the premise is essentially this is as, this is as good as like a mid-tier network sitcom, but there's tits. That was the entire pitch. There was, it was not highbrow at all. Now, two things happened though in the 90s that complicate the matter. One is the internet explodes, and that means the long-term uh, value of pitching here to a fee-based audience is going away because I can go on the internet and jack off. Why do I need this? So where do you go? You go to quality. You go to quality. The first HBO original series was Oz. And it came out in 1997, and they poached Tom Fontana from Homicide, which is one of the best procedural cop shows of the 90s in terms of critical acclaim. The closest thing there was in the pre-cable era to a prestige show. And the funny, as funny as Oz is on rewatch, it's interesting because they were clearly trying to make a show that was trying to appeal to a higher brow aesthetic audience. And they were doing it through the traditional uh, mode of narrative artistic expression on television, which was the teleplay. Like shows in the early uh, uh, broadcast era that were pitched towards a higher brow audience were largely things like Show House, Playhouse 90 and like uh, Twilight Zone or whatever. It's things with set stories uh, and, uh, and, and very bounded, uh, dramatic, uh, uh, very bounded, um, what's the word? Like blocking people, you know, people in rooms, people in rooms. And the need for, and uh, you know, like the, the, the popular uh, kitchen sink melodramas of the day. Well, in the 90s, by the 90s, the, the equivalent, the theater equivalent to that, the theater equivalent to, you know, Edward Albee or Eugene uh, was, um, or Neil Simon was like experimental theater, moment chants and all that shit. And so when they did try to do that, when they tried to bring that Playhouse 90 spirit to cable television, it was expressed with all the goofy physical shit with Harold Piranu, like talking to the screen and zipping around on a habit trail and, uh, and, you know, being splashed with paint. Like, that is a theatrical approach to highbrow art. And that was kind of a misfire, and it's, but it's still uh, an interesting, you know, artifact. But what it speaks to more than anything is that there was a recognition that if there's money to be made uh, in, in, in fee-based entertainment, a lot of it is going to come from offering a superior product in quality. Now, this is early. That's, that's, calculus changes later. But while there's still this remnant monoculture, it's, uh, it's quality, as broadly understood by like an a educated audience, who is always who you're pitching mass market entertainment to. And so when shows like The Sopranos showed up, they were meeting a new demand for people who, you know, were working longer hours, were more stressed, less able to afford time or money to go to the theater or read books, who were more yearning to find an easy way to distract themselves from their growing immiseration by, I don't know, watching a show. Uh, the Sopranos and, and those attendant shows and the network of, uh, you know, recap-related economies that sprung out around them were there to codify a new standard of quality within the entertainment industry around this new uh, model. This is essentially this new uh, business model. Like it was all, it's the entirety of prestige TV as an ideology is just wrapped around the material reality of the fee-based cable television model uh, competing with and replacing the broadcast ad-based model. And so that leaves us to wonder if that's what happens, if it's breaking off 
and and bound and like uh, uh, being defined in opposition to like it's not TV, it's HBO. Where what direction is it going culturally? If you're doing a fee-based service, by definition, you're going for the wealthier half of the people who watch broadcast television. Like the people who don't have money, to, who can't afford to pay to watch shows, there's nothing you're going to be able to say to them to get them to do it. They can't afford it. As, as long as there's a free alternative that offers something that to them is essentially the same thing. So that means you got to go for the upper half. That means you're going for the more educated half. You're going for almost exclusively college-educated people. The people making the program for them are exclusively college-educated. And what do they come up with? What is, this, what is this feedback loop of people paying for services, talking about the shows, the shows staying on, creating culture moving forward, Ripoffs being made, an entire genre of programming being created. What do they come up with? Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men. People joked about how it's the anti-hero. It's, it's, uh, it's the figure of tortured but highly competent narcissist uh, sociopathy. And there's a whole cottage industry of critics asking the question, why do we look up to these psychos? And it's because they're us in an exaggerated form. They are the Luciferian selfishness that drives everybody under capitalism magnified into these figures of our reflection on ourselves. And when I say us, I mean the people who watch these shows. So the college-educated half of that middle and upper middle blob. And what do we see? We see these psychopaths and what, who operate purely from narcissism and then the drama of the shows is them dealing with the consequences of that that they don't like. And they are, of course, I'm not saying that we're all as evil as they are, we're not anywhere near as evil as they are. We all have humanity that they don't. But on the flip side, they are also much more competent and powerful than we are. When I say that they are us, I'm not just saying like their worst They are our dreams of ourselves, our dark dreams of ourselves. If we were, essentially, we, those guys, those characters are answering the question, what would I be like if I was handsome as Don Draper if I was as good as chemicals as Walter White, if I'd inherited a mob fortune and was also smart like Tony Soprano, what would I be like? What would I do if I had those suite of skills and suite of, uh, uh, of uh, abilities and traits and attributes? Those exaggerated, stat that exaggerated status. And it, the answer is we would be monsters because we're operating from selfishness. Once again, I'm not saying any individual person entirely. I'm saying at the population level, collectively, our decisions at the end of the point, the pointy end, tend towards us choosing the self, most selfish path because we are fixed in a network of precarity and counter and exploitation and mutual exploitation, self-exploitation, with no undergirding. Uh, class consciousness to solidify as an opposition and uh, uh, push back against. Now, that's what's being created by the prestige TV genre. That is, this, this, that is going to become sine qua non, in my opinion, culturally, with the democratic coalition. I'm going to just say it. That's the Democratic Party. Prestige television, viewers of prestige television, uh, that that, if you want to, people say I talk too much college, non-college. If you define it correctly, I could say prestige TV, no prestige TV, or rather prestige TV self-consciously indulged in and prestige TV con uh, uh, indulged in 
as just something else on the cultural menu, and that like the whole package of prestige TV uh, 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 cultural artifacts and and like uh, expectations and values are just sort of invisible to you. Uh, so if that's what they're getting, what about the bottom half of, tel- of people watching network television? What are they going to get? Well, network television itself responded to the pressure of cable by doubling, by creating, and then hyper-exploiting the concept of the reality television show, which is the, the act of watching a show stripped of any artistic elements whatsoever. Like, as in, it is no longer an expression of someone's you know, creative will. It is just someone being themselves. And of course, no one is themselves. Everyone is performing. But every, like the, the barest art in reality programming is the art of performance of oneself, which I could literally get that anywhere. It is just transparent. And there was a while there in the, early, in the late, early aughts, just as reality TV is shaping up into a genre, when reality t- uh, or, uh, prestige TV was shaping up into a, a, its own genre, reality TV was reaching depths that it has not gotten to since. Uh, shit like fucking uh, Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? The Swan, where people would get, people with like facial deformities uh, would get plastic surgery and then compete in a beauty contest with each, with each other. Uh, Man versus Beast, where Kobayashi had an eating contest with a Kodiak bear. And if the prestige TV generation created their own characters, their drapers, their, uh, their Walter Whites, their Tony Sopranos. What did the reality TV generation, the people who do not find all of that pretension around, hey, this isn't television, this isn't entertainment, this is actually soul craft, whatever the fuck people who convince themselves that there is some deeper transcendent artistic association with a television program tried to talk themselves into. No, this is as good as a book. This is as good as, as Shakespeare. They don't have the cultural wiring to trick themselves into thinking that's true, which is what it comes down to. They haven't been conditioned to think that's true. And so this whole thing, this whole performance of quality falls on deaf ears. So who gets created out of the muck of reality? A bunch of celebrities, most of whom are non-political, But what's this? A few of them become very political. One of them, of course, we all know, becoming king of them all. But back to the prestige TV shows. As I've said, if prestige TV and the prestige TV antihero is sort of a cultural tulpa, a cultural expression of like this greater demographic mass, uh, then Barack Obama is the prestige TV here uh, president. He is the political equivalent. He is our expression of ourselves. Which is, as a narcissist, what would a narcissist, someone devoted to their Luciferian self-pursuit, do if they were to pursue the highest office in the land? And just like the answer is, what would you do if you were a Madison Avenue slickster is B. Don Draper? What would you do if you were a a fucking uh, algebra teaching genius with uh, cancer B. Walter White? What would you do if you were a fucking baller-ass black guy politician, you'd be president of the United States Barf Sacco Crumbo. And And if you read the stuff that Obama has written about himself, and written about himself, and written about himself, he seems to know that he is this character. Like, he is driven to express himself which is what we all are driven to, right? Like, that's the other part of this narcissistic compulsion, is that how many people who watch all this artist, uh, all this television, watch these movies, believe themselves to be destined to participate in that process, to contribute to it? How many people have flames of self-expression through, like, a creative life? That is the only life, by the way, that means anything in the entertainment that we consume. Every fucking movie and TV show premises on the idea that working with your hands 
long-term is a fate worse than death. That's basically the lesson we get from the culture, is that you have to have a higher ambition. You have to either be working towards some sort of life of mental reward, or you have to uh, be, even if you're in like a, a, a condition of, of uh, physical, manual, or unstimulative labor, you have dreams that you're working towards. Like, And so we're all, we are all, we're all looking at ourselves through our entertainment, is what I mean. Is that in a, in, a, in a totally commodified artistic and cultural space, like the one we have in, all art boils down to flattery. Because you're trying to get people to watch it, and people are going to watch it if there's something they like about it. And like, we could talk about what quality is, but quality is much harder to buy than pandering. So what we get over time, in every program to some degree, even our favorites, but way more degree in others, and over time more and more, as I'm saying, this is a fucking linear, this is a progressive process. This is, this is art being attenuated out of itself as we get micro-targeted. The sum total of our, uh, of our media consumption is flattery. And you say, well, well, why are the antiheroes? Why, are they, uh, why aren't they good guys? Well, we have the good guys. Those are us in our fantasies of ourselves. But because this is art, because we've convinced ourselves that this is meaningful art, which means it has to make us uncomfortable, it has to make us challenge our assumptions, it has to make us feel something, this has to be the dark version of our fantasy selves, of our flattered versions of ourselves, where we have the competence of our heroes, but none of their moral uh, character. And Barack Obama pursued his life like a fucking prestige TV anti-hero. He is fully invested in the notion that the world is unchangeable. That the fundamental machinery of exploitation that make the world run is unalterable. It cannot change. All we can do is find a place for ourselves within the gears. And that the value of our life comes from our ability to make those experiences uh, meaningful to ourselves. And of course, we can you know, turn that into any other self-justification. But at the end of the day, to create an impression, a, a Im imagined growth, a, a pseudo-growth to hide our central core of just narcissistic self-compulsion. Uh, uh, because Obama was driven narcissistically to the point of uh, total commitment by a desire to be, uh, to be acknowledged and ratified by power. Not to wield power, because he flatters himself intellectually too much to think that he could be so naive as to think that a politician could wield power. He knows they don't. That's part of what makes him deserve his station, because he knows that. And his knowledge of that gives him a layer of irony that coats all of his behavior and sanctifies every decision he made, which any position, person in that position would make, but which another person, a cruder person, a less refined person, a person who didn't follow the rules, didn't pe their pinky extended, didn't go through the right ideological conditioning, uh, will make worse. And he justifies himself in those terms. There is nothing that anything could do. Anything could only be worse. And the thing that made it better was him. And not his virtue, his irony. Which is all you have. When you cannot find like a... Uh, when, you feel in, when you feel that sense that happens, that has happened to me, of total uh, complicity in all the worst and most monstrous facets of life, there is a deep desire to just pull your own skin off and, 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 and deny your guilt 
And that has to go somewhere. A lot of it goes, some people, reactionaries, for example, love to put it outward and, uh, and, and blame others. But uh, a sophisticate uses irony to condemn themselves while, at the end, not condemning themselves. Giving themselves the reprieve of self-awareness. And that's Obama. And he spent eight years, as the economy was turning into this gigified hell for everybody, and, and essentially denying a viable future to everyone who came out of the fucking sluice vats of uh, childhood into adulthood. That became the expression of the top half of that distribution of culture who both watched prestige TV and voted in elections. Because remember, even though there are other people who vote, and there are working class people who vote, they're not riding the caboose, or they're not driving the train. They're not in charge of this process. Because without working class act, uh, action, without effective working class organization, the, the Democratic Party will be run by people for their own self-interest. And that is as members of the Democratic Party not as representatives of anything but themselves. And that's what happens when there's no accountability within a system of total uh, atomization and narcissism and, and, and uh, every person for themselves behavior. And so that means that these shows are essentially the brain of the people who run these parties and the people who put out the, the talking points that make up the cultural conversation around both the shows and politics. And this is the PMC as people define it. This is like the thing that needs to be killed, according to people. But what they're missing is that it is just this ghost. It's a ghost of a machine. And it's, and, and it's not in the sense that it's haunting it, in the sense that it's like levitating away from a fucking corpse. And so politics as the Democratic Party cohered around this Obama uh, consensus, which broke down with, uh, with, which basically broke down for lack of a uh, successor. Like, that was the real reason they were fucked after that, is they needed another one, and there wasn't any. Uh, but more importantly was the eruption of, oh, actually, no, Felix said something today on the show. Uh, Hillary was the FX version. Like, uh, Obama is like the, uh, the HBO AMC antihero. He's Walter White, and Hillary was Jax Teller from Sons of Anarchy, just the oafish FX metalhead version. Because she's from the 90s, and she didn't really, she wasn't of the moment. Like, Obama just stepped into it like a fucking wraith. But anyway, while Obama was creating this thesis, this political thesis, reality TV was creating this antithesis. And because it's reality television, and because the membrane of like propriety that the college people have around themselves, that prophylactic of pro propriety that they use to fuck reality, even though it does nothing, it has nothing, it's just denying themselves pleasure, uh, they don't have, they're, they're raw-dogging reality. So give me Donald Trump. Give me the actual reality show oaf. Give me the guy whose only actual artistic uh, 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 talent his only talent in life is being obnoxious in a way that is compelling to watch. And then make him the president. And then we got the rise of the, of the reality TV antithesis. And now they're fused. You've got the prestige TV Democrats and the reality TV Republicans. And... That doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to get another case of, like, perfect examples like this. And I think that these coalitions are going to see some uh, pressure in the coming years, for sure. So there's no way of knowing where it goes from here. But I think that's where we are now. Oh, okay. That was good. Yeah. I'm trying to get all this stuff straight because I want to be able to... Whenever I get anything done written down... I want to just be able to feel like I have made them my case and I don't have to like defend it anymore. That's my main thing.
Oh, the other thing about Obama and Prestige TV. So, this to me is the real nut of it. Just as like a, as a metaphor. So, Barack Obama famously loved The Wire, right? Loved The Wire, loved watching it. Many, many liberals pointed to the fact, either publicly or you know in their heart, that one of the things they liked about Obama was that he watched The Wire. Now, what's The Wire about, right? The Wire is this Dickensian foray into the demimonde of Baltimore. And it's, a social, it's like a Dreiser-like examination of the social ills created by our unjust system. And it even lays out like a case in five seasons. And the show is essentially the ideology of the Obama administration uh, as a performance, as, as an aestheticized uh, 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 expression. You got that first season, right? Shows the horror of the war on drugs, as you love to see in a, in a, in a, in a genre entertainment. But what's this? Oh, it's failed. This is a failed war on drugs. It doesn't work. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Damn. We've acknowledged that. We know that we know what's up. This problem, it's bad, and we're aware of the badness. Uh, what's all right, the second season answers the question. Well, why is it so wait a minute, if the drug if it's if we can't solve this problem by locking up drug dealers, we gotta find out what's causing it, if it's not just drug dealers. And the second season is about how, yeah, this is all because the economy of Baltimore basically fucking shut down in the second eight seventies and there's no money and uh, created cycles of poverty and dysfunction at every level of political and economic life. And it's, it's, it's like, it's not actually that difficult. It's pretty clear, but crucially there can be no solution to it because what is the only conceivable means of, uh, reversing this sort of economic trend, right? It, you would think it would be some sort of, uh, labor movement. Well, the labor movement is one part of the problem. Labor, and even if Frank Sabatka is a good guy, he has no hope of actually affecting change. Like, it's a doomed uh, criminal scheme that gets him killed and his fucking union decertified. And it ends on a note of, well, jam, I guess we're not going to be able to do anything about that. So, the next three seasons essentially find new culprits real things that we can do something about because we can't do anything about that pesky base. Third season's about drug legalization. If we got to have these drugs, we don't have to be rocking people up, which of course the Obama administration never carried out, but you always got the feeling that they knew that they should, you know? That's how people justify all this stuff. The fourth season identifies, oh man, we got a real bad school system. If only the schools were better, these kids would get in better situations. And then the third season, oh man, this media we got, it's pretty bad. If we only had a better media, this thing could be better. And that is the way, that is the Obama Democrat, which is like the brain now of culture, uh, approach to reality. This acceptance of capitalist realism, and then a jaundiced view on reforms that we should undertake and try to make go, but which are, at the end of the day, also probably insufficient. So how mad should we ever get that we didn't really do much more than we, any of that stuff we said we would? We know what to do, but there's only so much we can do. And for a lot of liberal Democrats, the fact that Obama watched The Wire stood in for having any actual coherent approach to any of the problems in The Wire. Because he'd seen it. And that is all of us in that headspace. A feeling complicit in a system, but also precarious. Wanting to uh, assert what we think is the best, for the best, without rocking the boat too much to fall, make us fall off of it. And our, the answer to that is broadly uh, neoliberal, the neoliberal democratic status quo. Like, well, you know, yes, this is a horrible, unlike, uh, unfortunate system, but, and yes, you know, I'm just one of the lucky ones who got out of this whole college experience with money and everything, but what else can we really do? What else, actually, let me rephrase this, what else can we really do that wouldn't risk my position? And the answer is not much, and that's the Democratic Party. 
But the thing to remember is the Republican Party is equally held by the wealthiest and most class-coherent and uh, portion of the people who reject all that bullshit. The ones who see this package of values and say, no thank you, I'm on the other team. The bottom part of that coalition is no more able to assert influence at the political level than the bottom half of the Democratic coalition is, and cannot for the same reasons. It's just beautiful voters, and, and, uh, and the, the small bourgeois, petty tyrant, uh, um, uh, buddy Garrity's of the world, trying to uh, create a, fa- a, 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 trying to act out this fantasy of national autar- autarky out of, you know, a, this remnant, the last gasp of the, uh, of the dreams of Jefferson, that, that anyone could be ungoverned because the conditions to be ungoverned in that Jeffersonian-Jacksonian sense no longer exist. But try telling them that. And you don't have to because they still have money. And they still have a lot of power. And they still have political power. And they're going to assert it. And they are, yeah, they are at war with the, the broader, like, globalized finance capital. But neither one of them have a goddamn thing for anybody below them except exploitation and misery. They are, hort- they are fucking trying to maintain their position within this hierarchy. Where the fuck will they get any benefit to uh, putting anything off to anyone else? In a moment of capitalist crisis, when there is no structural incentive, either politically or economically, for redistribution to occur in any framework. And that's why you cannot get anywhere through either of these parties. I did watch The Wire. What are you talking about? I saw The Wire twice. Not watching The Wire critically. I don't know what that means. And if you're saying, I didn't, I, I didn't get the right message out of it, that's not a thing. Sorry. That's not a thing. I know how it felt. It seems to me to have been processed, and you can't tell me I'm wrong. Obama didn't watch The Wire? What are you talking about? Obama watched The Wire. Shut up. You're gaslighting me. A conversation with President Obama and Wire creator David Simon. President praises the HBO series The Wire. Fuck you! Why would you do that? Are you guys guys getting riled up because I said something about your program you didn't like? It's still a good show. I've seen it twice. Uh, Y'all are gaslighting me, and I'm not here for it. Not here to be gaslighted. And by the way, forget what the politics are with The Wire. Its entertainment value is undeniable. The, the, the great acting, some decent photography, uh, some decent camera work, although nothing too impressive. It's not one of the more, uh, uh, I mean, it's like intentionally sort of neorealist, I guess. Uh, but without the wacky camera movements. And the, there's good stuff in it. I enjoyed it. I've seen it. I'm just talking about its, its residue. It's like political residue. And like I see a lot of people saying, like when Obama says he likes pre- a parasite or something, they say, did you really get it? It's like, well, you didn't really get it either. Nobody really got anything. You get it the way you want to get it. He, he's getting it the way he wants to get it. And we're all getting it the way he want, they, we want to get it. And I think people like Obama get it the way he got it. And that's why judging programs on their political content is dumb. Because you're just looking in a mirror. Carcetti, that's somebody said that. The only person on the wire who would have watched the wire is Carcetti. Exactly.
And I think the reason people don't like that idea is because there is buried, even in the deepest materialist, I think, who feels capped in this, at some level, beholden to cultural critique as like a way of life, that if enough people watch the right stuff, things would change. I think there's no way to understand people's response to art, the passion of the way they get about the politics of it, and the prescriptive way they get about the politics of it, if they did not believe that somewhere. There's no other way to make sense of their behavior. And that is, in my mind, delusion. Because everyone's just going to see it the way they were going to see it, which is conditioned by their spot in life. Your, your, the magical elixir you think is in there is only seeable by you and specific people like you. So, like people say, does Wolf of Wall Street make, uh, in, uh, encourage being an amoral scumbag? Yes, to amoral scumbags. I am not an amoral scumbag, and I had no desire to become one after watching that movie. It's a great movie. That has nothing to do with it. Okay, good. I feel like I got somewhere there. That's good. I'm done watching TV. I, I wanted to get this out there, and now I feel like I have. I feel like I finally kind of birthed the baby on that one, because... Uh, more than anything, when I was talking about Prestige TV, I just wanted to get at the idea that, 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 the, that the quality that's being imported there is, is a... It's a fantasy that we're all kind of participating in, will, consciously and unconsciously, because we're, we have to make do. Or we feel that we have to make do with it. And I don't judge anyone for feeling that, but I do feel like that's the underlying drive. And I didn't really ever feel like I articulated that as fully as I have here. I feel good about that. Most cringe HBO show. Uh, that's a good question. I haven't seen all of them. Um, That fucking, the show, the weird romance show where they were all fucking all the time. Tell Me You Love Me or whatever the hell it was. I was kind of like, what the fuck is that? What? Dream On is good. Shut up. It was a sitcom plus boobs. What else do you want? Weeds is a Showtime show. How dare you? Oh, God. Newsroom is very cringy. Newsroom is quite cringy. I've never seen John from Cincinnati. I kind of want to. I've heard it's pretty uh, funny. I loved Tales from the Crypt. Oh, my God. That was appointment television for me. Fucking Crypt Keeper. What a stitch. And that was HBO in its quintessence there before they got fancy. It was literally just EC Comics. The stuff that they used to keep uh, under the counter in the 50s. And they had fucking uh, conferences the, the, the fucking Kefauver committee had William Gaines in to ask him why he was perverting the youth. And it never, that kind of content would never cut it with the FCC. Just condensed into a show. Guys getting their heads chopped off and topless women everywhere. That was the original pitch. And then they got haughty. And the thing is, is I would that's the lie. Because you can buy tits and blood. You cannot buy art. And that was the lie that HBO and all these other motherfuckers have been selling ever since. And all these streaming motherfuckers have been selling ever since. That this narrow-casted pablum, this, this algebraically created shit, this machine-learned garbage is good. And why? Because we need it to be. Because we fucking need it to be. Read a goddamn book. I'm trying and failing. Trying to read books. Trying to write a book. Books are good, folks. What can I say? Books, we love them. We love a book. We love a book. Just read a book. But when you watch shows, and I watch shows, just have fun. Just have fun with it. Don't get mad for no reason. 
And don't go into a show going, how can I use this show to express a political view in some way? Or like, get mad at it, or de decide that defending it is part and parcel of defending like, uh, uh, all that is good against the rising tide of reaction. Yes, Oz does have the best theme song. I gotta say, much better, much better than The Sopranos. If you had told me that I had to judge which of those two shows would become the big cultural defining uh, hit, kind of come out of HBO's prestige lineup, and just by the theme song, I would have said Oz. I'm going out on this. Yeah, the Soprano song is terrible. One of the worst. Oh shit, am I gonna get DCCI'd for this? Alright, I don't wanna get DCCI'd. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.